Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios in Central Ohio. But you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. It's a wonderful pleasure to to have this opportunity from EWTN to take some moments to step aside and study the Word uh, through the eyes of the Church. That's one of the keys of this program. We recognize that it's important that we interpret and understand and pray and live Scripture through the the eyes of the teacher that our Lord gave us to receive the Word, and that's the Church. Apart from that, it's there were always in danger of misinterpreting the Scripture because it's very easy for us to be blind uh, to the baggage we bring with us from our background, from our our faults, uh, our particular uh, psychological makeup, whatever it is, it's hard for us, and I admit this myself, to always recognize the way that we might be reading ourselves or our situation or our needs or maybe what we see around us into Scripture or at least using that as the lens of Scripture. And when we do that, we pull Scripture out of the context in which it's been given to us because the written word was a part of the apostolic deposit of faith, the tradition, the early teaching of the church, most of which was delivered orally from Jesus to the apostles and then the apostles to their disciples and on and on and on. A part of that it was written down, but a good part of that was an, an oral tradition that established our faith and was then preserved by the Holy Spirit in the church. And so that's the important context in which we understand Scripture. And our guest today on Deep in Scripture, who's appeared last Monday night on the Journey Home program, is Cale Clark. And he was one of the wonderful experiences I had when I went to Canada last year to interview Canadian converts and reverts to the church. Cale's As he says, two most amazing discoveries in life have been that Jesus would forgive him and that Patricia would marry him. (laughs) And I had, again, the wonderful privilege of meeting both Cale and his wife Patricia when I was in Canada last year. In 2004, Cale returned to the Catholic Church, which was founded by Jesus Christ, after spending 10 years in evangelical Protestantism, with much of that time spent in pastoral ministry. Kayla is now the director of the Faith Explained Seminars. I'll have him uh, explain those when he joins us in a moment. They are were established to equip Catholics with the tools they need to explain and defend their faith. He is a frequent speaker at retreats and conferences, including such noted events as the Humanae Vitae conferences in Toronto, Ottawa, and Kingston, and addressing the Toronto chapter of Legatus. His latest venture is the creation of the New Mass app, the iPhone app for understanding the new English translation of the Mass, which I have on my iPhone. Kale has been interviewed... I actually have it on my iPhone as a gift from Kale. So thank you, Kale. Kale has been interviewed on EWTN's The Journey Home program, which you just heard last Monday night, and is a frequent guest on Salt and Light Television. He's a popular columnist for Catholic Insight Magazine, and his writing has also appeared on Headline Bistro. So it's it's great to have Kale back. He His whole journey was given on the Journey Home program that aired this last Monday night, but when he joins me in a moment, I'm going to have him give a refresher of his journey. He has a website, thefaithexplained.com. One word, thefaithexplained.com. You might want to check. So I asked Kale what scripture he'd like to choose, and he chose 25 of them. In other words, all of John chapter 21. And it's a good choice because there are many aspects of that particular chapter which I think a lot of people forget or misinterpret or, or aim in whatever direction they want to take it. It seems like it's that add-on chapter to John because it's it, it seems like it follows a conclusion and then these additional experiences of the apostles and disciples with the resurrected Lord. But they're particularly important in relationship to Peter and John. And so we'll look at those in a moment. Let me just read 
oh, uh, just a f- couple verses to uh, remind you of the text, and then when Kale joins us, we'll read the specific portions as we go through our discussion. So again, this is John chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work, and sprang into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there, with fish lying on it, and bread. We'll pause there. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodite's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Cale Clark. Hello, Cale. Hey, Marcus, how are you? It's great to have you on the phone, and uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's, uh, it's great to be with you once again, this time on the radio as opposed to television. And uh, growing up, I was always told I had a face made for radio. I'm not sure what people meant that. But, uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know. They were lying because they, <laughs> people see your, uh, your photo on the website, and uh, you're just fine for television, of course. You're, you're too kind. You're too kind. But it, it's great to be chatting with you again. Well, the one of the reasons we follow up the journey home now with the deep in scripture uh and this is the way we're doing deep in scripture now slightly different than we did in in the early days is because it gives a chance for me to ask you to look at a more biblical side of your journey than maybe we were able to cover on the journey home program i gave a, a quick summary of your journey in a moment ago might be good to help the audience know a little bit more about your journey just so they know where you're coming from Absolutely. Well, I'm a, I'm a cradle Catholic uh, who left the church and came back, so I'm a revert, as, as uh-huh. they're known, and uh, grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And um, really growing up, I was, you know, what I like to call a CENO, uh, which stands for Catholic in name only. I mean, I was baptized, <laughs> but that's about it, you know, which is a great thing, obviously, the life of Christ uh, living within me. But in terms of how much that life was actualized uh, in my day-to-day existence, uh, it wasn't much. I uh, didn't really read the scriptures. I didn't know much about the Bible at all. And I uh, was pretty, pretty much irreligious and uh, became a bit of an agnostic, really, when I was in high school. Uh, when I was in university, I came back to faith in the Lord through campus ministry. Uh, guys from a uh, local Baptist church uh, knocked on my door while I was studying uh, at Illinois State University 
and uh, they were doing door-to-door evangelism, and I knew it, and I let them in just to argue with them. <laughs> but uh, they wound up convincing me about uh, the historicity of Jesus Christ, and especially his resurrection. And that was really the thing that uh, allowed me to put my trust back in Jesus. Um, the other thing they told me, of course, was that I needed to get out of the Catholic Church immediately. <laughs> so, uh, and unfortunately, they weren't very well educated about Catholic doctrine, neither was I. <laughs> So uh, it was uh, pretty easy for me to leave, and uh, one thing uh, led to another, and I eventually got into ministry, uh, got into pastoral work, and for about 10 years uh, I was uh, in ministry doing youth ministry. I was an associate pastor, and um, and really I was enjoying my life. It was it was a fun life. It was a great life. I loved preaching, and I uh, loved ministering to the people. Uh, but God began to call me home uh, near uh, about 2002, 2003. Um, Make a long story short, and we've covered this on the show. I right. ran into someone who was who was actually a convert to Catholicism, uh, who challenged me to do some reading and really look into, especially the fathers of the Church. And uh, when I did that, uh, I realized that uh, the fathers were Catholic. Uh, the early Church was Catholic, uh, contrary to what I'd been taught uh, in seminary, and this was quite a revelation to me. And uh, one of the scriptures that really struck me was uh, the one we're going to talk about uh, today, uh, John twenty-one. Like I said in the intro, that uh, people can interpret this passage in a number of different ways, often uh, missing important parts of it. So I'm glad that you've chosen this. One other thing before we jump into um, the text, because I want to make sure you have a chance to tell the folk about the Faith Explained seminars and the faithexplained.com website. That's your website to your work. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, we, we've had a great time uh, with the Faith Explained seminars, uh, traveling around uh, both Canada and other places, um, explaining, defending the Catholic faith. And we put on seminars that deal with apologetics uh, and really other issues, too. Right now, I'm doing a lot of talks about the new translation of the Mass, and uh-huh. uh, thank you for mentioning uh, the new Mass app, yeah. uh, which is available in the App Store uh, through iTunes, which we created just to help you know ordinary, everyday Catholics uh, understand and learn uh, the new translation uh, that's coming our way very, very soon. Uh, so I find myself doing a lot of talks about that, and um, this fits in really well with our with our scriptural theme on this show too. Because uh, one of the great things about the new translation is, in fact, uh, the great biblical basis of it, and I think uh, all the biblical allusions and references uh, in the mass texts come through very, very clearly uh, in the new translation. It's something we tried to highlight. Uh, in the app as well, and we made it. Well, it's, it's, it is good that you've done the app, and it's amazing how how quickly the technology uh, is uh, entering into our life of faith. We sure see is. that the Holy Father and the Vatican have, have recognized the power of the media, of course. Uh, there are some that want to take more of a, a Luddite perspective and, and you know, and, and kind of look at the media in a negative light rather than recognizing that it's it, it's it's god created it good it's just how you use it yeah, that's, that's there's no doubt there um you know and john paul ii really you know embraced uh, the media and, and really used it to the church's advantage you know right. almost a, a megaphone for evangelism i think benedict is is obviously continuing in his footsteps and you know he's mm-hmm. even tweeting these days so i mean wow who would have thunk it <laughs> I some know. years ago that a pope would be uh uh, talking to the world through Twitter, but uh, yeah. you know, it's probably something St. Paul himself would have done, you know, I can imagine he would have been, you know, writing the, the, the tweet to the Romans, you know, if you were here today, you would use anything at his disposal to uh, to bring the message to people, and uh, it's great to see the Church embracing all of those means, um, and you know, yeah. that, you know, that's one of the reasons why I created the app, because a lot of Catholics, you know, they would never necessarily drop into a Catholic bookstore and, and read about the new translation of the Mass, but they do have mobile phones, they do have iPhones right. and iPod touches, and they might be willing to, uh, to download an app. And my own pastor said, you know, hey, if, if I see people using it at Mass, I won't think that they're texting, you know, I'll know that they're just following along. So, <laughs> good to hear. Yeah, and uh, like anything, we've got to make sure we use it for for what it was intended, and, and we've got to be... There's always a temptation there, even with radio. I mean, there always has been, you know, good and bad radio programs and Internet and television and yep. and such. Uh, so we are called to use it responsibly, and we'll stand before a Lord for how we use it. Uh, and Absolutely. so, but it's a, if we don't use it, we might be held responsible for, for ignoring a great gift. So, now why John 21, Kale? Well, 
John 21, uh, well, even, you know, the, the whole of John's Gospel has always fascinated me, um, <laughs> even when I was doing uh, my seminary studies um, at Tyndale Seminary in Toronto. Uh, I've always loved John's Gospel, as many, many Christians have throughout mm-hmm. the centuries, and it's a lot of people's favorite. Um, one of the things, and you, you can probably identify this uh, with this, too, from, from your own background, um, I found a lot in doing scripture study on John uh, that there is a somewhat, um, shall we say, skeptical view towards John that, that is uh, you know, out there in the scholarly community. And this eventually filters down to the people through sermons, through preaching. Um, and one of the things that is often said about John is that uh, John is not as historical as the other Gospels are. Um, a lot of people think that John was, was merely... Uh, almost inventing things out of thin air to fit a theological perspective. Um, I don't think that that's true at all. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a great book that came out in the year 2001 by Craig Blomberg, who's a very noted evangelical scholar, called The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel. It's a great book, and I think he, he, uh, he really assails a lot of the common um, uh, misperceptions uh, towards John that, that are out there. So, so some scholars feel that it's, it's ahistorical, um, I don't think that it is. In fact, some of the history in John is, is really fills in a lot of the gaps that, uh, that are in the Synoptic Gospels. And um, John talks about events that really they don't cover. Uh, but right. just because it's different doesn't mean it's not, not historical. And another thing that I came across a lot of my studies was this idea that there was, in the early church, different Christianities, plural. Mm-hmm. There was a Johannine community, if you will, that followed the teachings of John, a Petrine community, a Pauline community, uh, based around the churches that, that Paul started, but that, you know, these groups sort of functioned autonomously to a certain extent. They weren't really united. Um, I don't think that that's really a, a good argument either, and I think that John 21, in particular, goes a long way towards, uh, you know, explaining the, the Petrine privilege, if you will, the Petrine principle, the papacy, yeah. one of the things that's highlighted in this chapter, uh, just as much as it's highlighted in Matthew 16. Well, that uh, phenomenon that you described about the scholars mm-hmm. uh, presuming that there are these independent communities in the early church that to a certain extent have very little contact with one another other than reading their different letters um, really grew out of the Protestant world yeah. uh, with the presumption that there was no unified church in the early days of the church and that the unification uh, that, quote, came later, unquote, uh, happened as a result of either Constantine or Leo the Great or the first consuls, but they were imposed on these individual communities that had this vibrant freedom uh, to explore spirituality and to run with it. Um, And again, that's as if Jesus sent his 12 out without any instruction, just said, listen to Holy Spirit and whatever you like, just do it. (laughs) Uh, And you almost, you end up that way when you have kind of the independent perspective that comes in Protestant scholarship. And sadly, that's crept into also some of our, our Catholic scholarship, too. Uh, that's a very good point. Like, there are a lot of Catholic scholars who, who hold these views, too. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and like you said, I think, you know, from, Pro- from a Protestant perspective, I think a lot of it is reading into the early Church the current situation in the Protestant world, you know. Uh, uh, but again, like, this is where the Fathers of the Church and interpretation of the Scriptures throughout the centuries is so important, because... When you look at history, you don't see that. You see a unified church. You see the Bishop of Rome having a primacy. And this is borne out in many, many historical uh, circumstances, even in the early years. So, All right. Well, let's, um, I'm taking too much of your time in my discussion here because we've got a whole chapter to cover. So right. why don't you go ahead and jump us in. We, we start out with this uh, interesting uh, scenario where Peter decides he's going back fishing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, Marcus, a, a lot of people think that uh, when they read this, they think, you know, Peter has somehow abandoned the apostolic mission. You know, he's kind of forgotten about his call, and the other apostles have too, and they're kind of going back to their old way of life. Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. We have to remember at this point uh, in the Gospel, Jesus has already appeared uh, at least a couple of times. 
uh, to the apostolic band and, uh, you know, showing them his resurrected body. And But we do know that Jesus could often, you know, disappear for a week at a time, you know, uh, in his resurrected state. And, and, you know, who knows when he's coming back to give them further instructions. You know, I think probably they're just going fishing because... They were hungry, you know. <laughs> they want to make good use of their time. Maybe they want to make some extra cash. I don't know. But at any rate, uh, they, were, they were fishing. And, and it's kind of interesting that the, the setting of fishing is there because um, fishing and the apostolic mission, the evangelistic mission of the church, are obviously very, very intertwined. And, uh, you know, Jesus did have a plan for the church going forward. It's not like he said, as you alluded to earlier, Marcus, you know, you guys just do whatever you want. You know, I think Jesus was a pretty smart guy, and he, he knew the, the structure that he wanted to give to his church, uh, which he gave his life for. And um, so It may be, just to, to jump in there for a second, yeah. I, I, what you're saying is, I, I agree, and, and it may be, uh, as we look at our own lives, as we seek to discern what God wants us to do. Uh, not all of us think that we just do our lives but if we're one that i believe god has called us to do something lord what do you want me to do how do you want me to carry out your mission in my life that may have still been the discernment process for simon peter for thomas the twin and nathaniel uh trying to figure out okay lord how are are we going to carry out this great commission you gave us um and it's interesting to say that as you said he'd appear and then not appear for a while then come back and sometimes he gives instructions, and then he's giving them time to reflect on it. Um, and it is interesting that the passage coming up is we have that encounter between Jesus and Peter uh, over the issue of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a part of his discerning his call. No, no doubt. And, and, of course, in that conversation, as we'll see, you know, Jesus does allude to what will happen in the future for mm-hmm. Peter. In fact, his... Um, his martyrdom, uh, the end of his journey on earth. Um, but as they begin, you know, uh, you know, with this chapter at the beginning, they, they are out fishing, and uh, of course they're, they're fishing all night and, and catching nothing. Um, and it, as day was breaking, as it says in verse 4, Jesus was standing on the beach, and the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Uh, Jesus said to them, Children, have you any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. And a lot of people have looked at this uh, this incident, and they've said, aha, John is simply recreating, he is uh, redoing, if you will, uh, the incident that uh, is recorded in Luke chapter 5, which, which has to do with the original calling of the apostles and the miraculous catch, catch of fish. And Peter, of course, this is when he kneels down at the Lord's, fish and says, or at the Lord's feet and says, depart from me. A Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He's just, you know, overwhelmed at mm-hmm. the power of Jesus. I don't think this is the same incident. I think this is a, a separate incident, and uh, the reason is because this, this is, this is how they know that it is Jesus. Right. Essentially, um, now, it's probably early in the morning. It's it's dark out. They can't quite see. Uh, you know, people weren't wearing eyeglasses in those days. I don't know if they had vision problems, but but they didn't know it was the Lord until. They hauled in this miraculous catch of fish. And it may be like the Emmaus Road experience where they're kept from recognizing him, as it says. That's a very, very good point, Mark. The grace works in our lives in different ways. And, you know, they had to, there was a, a purpose for they're not recognizing Jesus at this point, that God in his, his wisdom knows better than us. But that seems to be the situation. And, and also, you know, elsewhere in the Gospels, you know, you think of the Amazed Road experience, as you alluded yep. to earlier in, in, in Luke. Um, in his resurrected state, uh, Jesus isn't always, you know, readily <laughs> recognizable. There's something mysterious about his appearance in his resurrected body that sometimes keeps people from recognizing him right away. But at any rate, uh, once they do know it's Jesus, um, you know, Peter, uh, you know, impulsive as he is, you know, just jumps right into the water and starts swimming towards him. He doesn't want to even, even wait for the, for the boat to, to reach land. He wants to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. And, and you see there, too, the, the different personalities of Peter and John, you know, who are so intertwined. You know, even if you read the first few verses of Acts, you know, John, the contemplative, who recognizes Jesus right away, it is the Lord. And Peter, the the man of faith, who was willing to put everything on the line at all times. All right, good. Let's pause there, and we'll come back with that after the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Cale Clark. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. 
Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for Wings, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the Wings link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your Wings today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grody's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus as he welcomes former Presbyterian Father Fred Wirth to the show. See how he left his faith tradition to make the journey home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody, joined today by Cale Clark. Uh, Cale, we, we cut you right off there in the, the, in the middle of the passage when you were describing the fact that John and Peter, as well as the other disciples, each responded to Jesus slightly differently, mm-hmm. based a bit on their character. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, when you, when you look at John, um, you know, John the Apostle is presented as the beloved disciple. He is always close to the Lord. He is the first to respond in faith. He always kind of gets it, uh, whereas Peter, as we know, had to learn some tough lessons. Uh, John recognized Jesus immediately. He said, it is the Lord. As soon as the fish were drawn in, he realized that it was Jesus. Of course, he was reminded of that other miraculous catch of fish that happened uh, at the beginning of their right. call. And, and Peter just dives in full of faith, you know, wants to get to the Lord immediately, doesn't even want to wait for the boat to reach land. And, you know, as St. Jose Maria Escriva once said, uh, with a love like John's and a faith like Peter's, what is there that can stop us? You know, <laughs> we have to adopt both of those personalities, if you, if you will. Yeah, uh, Martha and Mary, you, you know, that we have those that are more contemplative, you know, as a spiritual writer's talk about growing in union with our Lord Jesus, the Teresa of Avila, the seven castles. Well, John was probably in the sixth or seventh castle of spirituality. (laughs) Peter, maybe not. You know, Peter was a man of action, and he's jumping in. That's why he's leading everybody, and he uh, he gets crucified upside down in Mm -hmm. Rome eventually. Uh, John, he lasts the longest of all the apostles, Uh, but he's a contemplative life. And in fact, that's we see the humility even here, as whether it was he writing this or a, a secretary writing down what John is saying. Regardless, he's described as the one whom Jesus loved. The intimacy, yeah, and it, that is there, and that's very true. And, and really, uh, you know, John is, is you know he's never referred to by name uh, in his book. Uh, he's referred right. to as the beloved disciple, and really. In that sense, he is a stand-in for all Christians, because all of us are beloved disciples of the Lord. And, uh, you know, that, that great scene uh, at the foot of the cross when Jesus uh, gives John to the care of his mother and says, you know, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. You know, John is kind of a stand-in for all of us, you know, in that sense. Uh, but, you know, after this, this point, when, when Peter just dives in <laughs> and swims towards Jesus, that's when we really get to the heart of the passage in terms of, how it uh, impacts the papacy. Okay. We begin to get into, uh, into that, uh, that stuff right now. It says in verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. 
So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Uh, it's kind of interesting that, you know, when Jesus says, cast your nets on this side of the boat and they haul in all this fish. I mean, there's so many fish. They All together, they can barely uh, haul it onto the boat. But here's Peter now by himself dragging the net ashore, and it is not torn, even though it's full of fish. And uh, I think there's a lot of stuff in there that we really need to pay attention to. Um, one of the things that St. Gregory the Great once said about this passage was he said that the presence of Christ standing on the land signifies the stability and the peace of the resurrection life. Whereas the sea, you know, where the apostles were at the moment, you know, on their boats, and you know, kind of tossed by the waves, that represents the instability and the commotion of, of mortal life. You know, the labor that we have to undergo in this world. But the, but the idea is we have to get to that heavenly shore. So we see Peter here dragging the net ashore. I think that is a symbol of his leadership of the church getting us all, we're represented, of course, by the fish, onto the heavenly shores, getting us there safely and all together. That's, that's kind of his job. That's the job of the Petrine ministry. And um, I think that's, that's really, really brought out very, very nicely uh, in this passage. You know, I was going to say, Kale, that when I, in my own journey to the church, in the end, the final issue that convinced me to become Catholic was the Petrine office. Wow. And it came from reading a book. The, the final straw for me was a book by John Henry Cardinal Newman called The Development of Doctrine, mm-hmm. in which he establishes the historical foundation of the authority of the Bishop of Rome. But so often, as I read history, it was clear that the only reason that there is a Christian faith today is because of the popes throughout history that have taken on the battle themselves. I mean, we see it here. You know, the rest of the disciples stayed in the boat. Peter jumped in the water. That's a good point. You know, there we see in all the difficult times throughout history, the popes taking on the battle. And even, let's say, as recently as 1968, when yep. when Paul VI released Humana Vitae in defense of life and sticking to the traditional teaching of the Church on difficult issues in a, in a sea of opinions that was pressing everyone, even many Catholic theologians and priests and leaders, to change the views of the Church. But the Holy Father would not. And that's him jumping into the fray. Absolutely. Like If you look historically at the ministry of the Bishop of Rome, uh, there were some great heresies that infected the Church throughout the centuries. You know, not even a, yeah. you know, a modern false teaching like you just mentioned, but uh, you know, uh, false teachings about the nature of Jesus Christ himself. And it was only the Bishop of Rome throughout history. Uh, bishops of some major, you know, some other major apostolic sees like Alexandria, uh, etc., have taught heresy throughout the centuries, but the Bishop of Rome never taught uh, a public heresy in the history of the Church. You know, just a great example of that uh, promise made uh, to Peter by Jesus. Uh, Even when some of the popes, their brother, private lives were not you know, very honorable. True. The Holy Spirit protected them from proclaiming something uh, inaccurate in terms of faith and morals. You know, they were kept faithful as that uh, clear message of unity throughout the history of the Church. Absolutely. I mean, there were popes who were thieves, but they never taught that stealing was right. You know, God prevented them from teaching yeah. a heresy as the official you know position of the Church, even if they may have been guilty of it in their personal lives. And um, it kind of reminds me of something that um, G.K. Chesterton said long ago, you know, about about St. Peter, about the papacy. Uh, he said that, you know, when Christ at a, at a symbolic moment was establishing his great society, he chose for its cornerstone neither the brilliant Paul nor the mystic John, but a shuffler, a snob, a coward, in a word, a man. <laughs> and upon this rock he has built his church, and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. All the empires and the kingdoms have failed because of this inherent and continual weakness. They were founded by strong men and upon strong men. But this one thing, the historic Christian church, was founded on a weak man. And for that reason, it is indestructible, for no chain is stronger than its weakest link. (laughs) You know, that's so well put, as usual, by Chesterton, and pretty much says it all. So they they get on shore, and Jesus calls them to breakfast. 
Yeah, and, and, and just, to, just to finish off the thought about the, about the net, um, yeah. a lot of people have written, a lot of ink has been spilled throughout the centuries about the number of fish that were caught, because John makes a point of saying that there were 153 fish in the net. Um, you know, there, and there have been many, many yeah. uh, interpretations of this that have been given, zoological interpretations, mathematical, allegorical, <laughs> right. geometrical. Uh, but, you know, a much easier interpretation might be that that was the actual number of fish. I mean, you know how fishermen <laughs> are with their stories. I mean, this is a great catch. They want to know exactly how many are there. But I do think there's a deeper meaning to it. Um, Here's, here's one interpretation uh, from a zoological perspective from uh, St. Jerome. Uh, he said that at his, in his day, they had identified exactly 153 different kinds of fish in the world. Um, most of the interpretations, no matter where they come from, center on the universality of the catch, a complete yeah. catch. And it's very interesting that the, the Greek verb that is used in, in the text of Peter dragging the net ashore is the same word that Jesus said earlier in the Gospel in 1232 when Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Uh, Of course, when he's lifted up on the cross, he begins that process of drawing all humanity to eternal life through him. But Peter has a role to play in this, and that is symbolized by his dragging the unbroken net full of the fish onto the shore. It's through the Petrine ministry that we can get safely uh, to that heavenly shore. All right. I want to keep pushing you on because I want to make sure you get keep all going. in that you want. To, I mean, <laughs> great stuff, Which, we, we, but go ahead. So they have breakfast. Yes, they, they, they have breakfast. And, and, you know, Peter was probably getting a little bit nervous uh, <laughs> when they started to eat because the text mentions that there is a charcoal fire. Uh, on the shore that Jesus had made. And there's only one other verse in the entire New Testament that mentions the word charcoal fire. And guess where that is? That's in John 18, where Peter denies knowing Christ over a charcoal fire in the high priest's courtyard. So, you know, he's probably thinking, oh, (laughs) I don't like what's (laughs) going to happen next. And uh, uh, Jesus does give Peter some some very uncomfortable moments over the next few minutes. And uh, um, but it, it, he's not trying to push his buttons. He's not trying to be mean. He's trying to make a very important point. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John. And, oh, that had to hurt. That had to be a twisting of the knife because he hasn't called him Simon, son of John since the time that he first called him, way back in you know the beginning of John's Gospel. Uh, of course, he, he's been changed. His identity has been changed to Peter the Rock. But he goes back to the original name by which he called him. It's almost like Peter's starting over. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And a lot of you know debate about what it, what Jesus meant by that. Do you love me more than these these fishing boats and nets? Do you love me more than you love the other apostles? But I think that what Jesus means is, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because Peter had promised Jesus. He said, I love you. I will never leave you. I will even go to death uh, to follow you. But of course, we know what happened. He. Uh, uh, the words of a, a young girl, Peter became afraid and, and denied even knowing Christ. But uh, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, this is a a very important conversation because it is in John's Gospel that Jesus called himself the Good Shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And that was back in John chapter 10, of course. And it's very interesting that uh, Vatican I, which talks so much about the role of Peter in the Petrine ministry, Vatican I uh, declares that it is in this episode, in John 21, that Christ makes Peter the visible head and chief pastor of the church. Not necessarily in Matthew 16, although obviously the Matthew 16 passage is very important for the papacy. But it is in this passage that Pastor Eternus, that great document of Vatican I, uh, says this is the root of of the the leadership of Peter in the church. So I I think it's very important for us to note. It would seem that a key, one of the keys, in verse 17, when, when finally Peter, it says that he grieved, because Jesus asked a third time. Mm-hmm. He says, Lord, you know everything. And I think that is one of the keys to all three of the statements by 
Peter, Lord, you know that I love you. This this issue of understanding Jesus and his realization of who we are to the depths of our being, Peter was affirming that Jesus knows even his, not just his faults, but really to the depth of his heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but Jesus was going through that action of the of as many have said you know the the three forgivenesses for the the three failings of Peter absolutely almost like when we go to confession and uh through the ministration of the altar Christus the priest we lay before the lord our failings and then we're given uh a uh, you, you know a, a task whether it's a word or an action that is to be an expression of our forgiveness, and then we receive absolution. And that's kind of what clears the way for Peter to reassume the role that he had been given. Why don't we take another break, Cale, and you sure pick thing. up on that when we come back. Will do. You're listening to Deep in History. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Cale Clark, and you're hearing this on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I joined by Cale Clark. Cale, uh, you may have heard me do a full pod there a moment ago and called this Deep in History. This is not our the Deep in History conference that we are now doing in, in uh, conjunction with Francis University this fall in October. We'll talk more about that. But this is Deep in, in Scripture. Um, this Again, this passage is so key to understanding the authority of Peter. But it, it's interesting that every single time Jesus reminds Simon Peter of his calling now. It's always in a pastoral sense. Absolutely, and uh, that pastoral sense, you know, the image of of the pastor, of the shepherd, you know, is a a common biblical image. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus applied it to himself in John 10. You know, he said, you know, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand runs away when he sees the wolf coming. And, and in a sense, Peter did that. You know, he was afraid. You know, he saw the coming crisis. He, he saw that, you know, he could no doubt uh, realize that Jesus was going to die. And, you know, when it came down to brass tacks, he wasn't able, he wasn't strong enough to follow him to prison and to death as, as he promised Jesus that he would. That was prior to the resurrection, of course. And it's that Easter moment, uh, the conquering of death by Christ in his physical body, that gave Peter the strength to begin again. And uh, Jesus affirms affirms to him that in the future he will indeed be able to follow where Jesus himself has gone. And right after they have this conversation, and just as Peter had denied Jesus three times over a charcoal fire, you know, Jesus now reaffirms uh, Peter's love for him three times over a charcoal fire. And, And then Jesus says this, he says, Truly, truly, in verse 18 of chapter 21, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this he said to him, follow me. And truly now Peter is able to follow Jesus to the cross. And of course, as we know, Peter asked to be crucified upside down when he was martyred in the circus of Nero around the year 68 AD, uh, he was able to give his life because he knew that Christ had conquered death. He knew that uh, Christ would give him the strength uh, to, to lead and to be that shepherd that he called him to be all along. The next little section is an interesting parallel, it seems to sure. me, that in Matthew 16, right after guided by the, the Father, 
Peter gives the the right confession of who Jesus is, and then that's when Jesus says that he'll be Peter. But then, not long after that, Jesus Peter tries to discourage Jesus, and Peter's and and Jesus turns to Peter and says, "You know, get thee behind me, Satan." That's right. Yeah. Well, we see here Peter being reinstated to the ministry. And then it looks like he looks over at John and says, "Hey, what about this guy? <laughs> what about this guy? Yeah, that's that's absolutely true, and we're we're quite prone to do that as well in our own lives. And say, Lord, you know, why can't I be like Marcus Grodi? You know, I, I wish I could, but but uh, you know, but we all have to follow the path that Christ has marked out for us. And uh, for John, he was the only apostle that was not martyred. Yep. Uh, he lived a very long life, and lived into the reign of the Emperor Trajan. You know, uh, towards the end of the first century." Um, and so, um, you know, when, when Peter says that, and, and, and Jesus says back to him, you know, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You must follow me. Um, those are words that we have to take to heart ourselves, yeah. of course. Um, but getting back to what I was talking about originally in terms of this, this passage in my seminary studies, mm-hmm. um, even if it were true that um, there were different Christianities uh, flourishing in you know in the early uh, first century, which I don't think is the case. Uh, there are many even Protestant scholars who say that it is because of this this pastoral commissioning by Jesus uh, to Peter that these Johannine communities must come under the leadership of Peter, and and of course Peter is not alive at this point when the gospel mm-hmm. is written, so it must be through the successor of Peter that they must come under. His leadership, and so again, this is why Rome is so important. Uh, and if Peter had died somewhere else, the papacy would have been located there, because it is where Peter is that we find the church, as Saint Ambrose said so long ago. Yeah, that um, passage, verse twenty-two, where Jesus confronts Peter about, hey, it's if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me is, as you said, as a reminder for all of us to uh, listen to the Lord and obey the Lord mm-hmm. and to not get caught up in judging other people or being jealous of other people or envious of other people or bitter about. It's like Jesus saying, their lives, that, that's up to me. It's not up to you. You listen to me in what God calls you to do. And Right there, it's as if Peter's getting his challenge to be the leader, and again, his personality comes out a little bit. He's not all of a sudden, he's been forgiven, but he's not perfect. That's right. He's still Simon Peter. And there's a message in that for all of us, right? I mean, we're called to grow in holiness, but as Paul said, I've not arrived yet. I'm still on the journey. Yeah, and you know, and and, and, and there are a lot of things that we struggle with that we have to... Um, you know, continue to fight against throughout their entire lives. And, you know, maybe it's pride. You know, Peter obviously was a man who was, you know, yeah. who really had to struggle with his pride. Um, and, and, you know, all of us, you know, when we look at the Catholic Church and, and the claims that the Catholic Church is making, you know, very often we have to swallow our pride and say, Lord, this isn't necessarily where I would choose to go, but if this is where your church is, you know, I have to bend the knee to to you and your will and and adopt those teachings as if they were your own, because they are your own, Lord. Uh, it is Christ who teaches and leads through Peter and his successors. Something that's borne out. Well, as you know from your background, Kale, that there are a lot of non-Catholics that uh, do not accept, not even listen to the Church, because they'll just point their fingers at Catholic leaders who've failed, mm-hmm. or Catholics who've not lived out their faith. Yeah. And Jesus is basically saying, what business is that of yours? You follow me. Yeah, it can be a convenient excuse to bring up failings of, of church leaders. Um, you know, but uh, again, it's, it's a way of evading the question that we all must face. You know, uh, does Christ speak to us today through the Catholic Church or not? And it's true that even sometimes the leaders within the church uh, her bishops, her priests, have failed in that regard, and, and thankfully, you know, we're dealing with, you know, small pockets of people, you know, who have who have done so. But it, it's simply not possible to follow Christ, to love Christ, 
uh, without listening to the Church and loving the Church, because we don't even know who Jesus is without the Catholic Church. Again, think about all those heresies about the person of Christ through the first four centuries, you know. Is is he really a divine person? Uh, Is he 100% man? Is he 100% human? Is he... 50% 50% God, 50% human, you know. There, everything under the sun was kind of brought forward in the early years, and it was only the Catholic Church that could divide truth from error, uh, you know, in large part through the ministry of the Bishop of Rome, you know, to say, no, this is the faith of the Church, and this is not. So, um, and, that, and that, you know, Christ continues to teach through, through that Church today. The reason we have a New Testament canon a list of New Testament books, which books are in it and which books are not, is because a gathered gathering of Catholic bishops in union with the Pope, mm-hmm. the Bishop of Rome, gathered in the end of the 4th century to determine which were the books of the Bible. Apart from that gathering of bishops in the name of the Church, guided by the Holy Spirit, it'd be up to every any committee of gathered faithful leaders to decide which is going to be their individual collection of books. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So if you have a collection of books, and Peter Kreeft has often made this point, uh, if, you have a, if you have a collection of books and you say that this is an infallible collection of books, the organization that made that list must also be infallible in order to say that. <laughs> um, you know, it has to be. And um, another thing, too, is that, you know, you mentioned the canon. This is another thing that we can say to, to friends who may be struggling with concepts uh, like the infallibility of the Pope, you know, when speaking ex cathedra on issues of, of faith or morality. Um, all Christians, whether Protestant or Catholic, already believe in this concept in principle because of the canon of Scripture. You know, and obviously, you know, Protestants and Catholics differ on the number of books in the canon. But even a Protestant would believe that over a period of many, many years, many centuries, God preserved from error many, many writers over a long period of time. Why can't he preserve the leader of his church today from error? It'd be the same guidance of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of what Jesus promised back in John chapter 14 and 15. Absolutely true. The same spirit. Kale, thanks for joining us. Sorry we've run out of time. I want to remind the audience of your website, www.thefaithexplained.com. Marcus, it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank all of you who are joining us on this program. Again, I encourage you to go to, to Kale's website. Good stuff. Uh, Q&A on the Ascension right now. Uh, you can uh, get involved with the discussion, uh, even some discussion right now about the authenticating the resurrection of Jesus. Some good stuff on his website, so check it out. Also check out EWTN.com to know more about all the work of EWTN. Thank you for joining us on this program. God bless you. See you soon.